Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm one of your co-hosts, Alexis. I'm Dallas. And I am the comedian. <gasps> I got it. I knew, I found it. I figured out the pun. We made it work. <laughs> oh, and if that wasn't enough of a hint or any of our social media presence this week, we have decided, and by we, I see, I, I mean me, I was bamboozled, but not really tricked, you could say, blindsided into choosing The Watchmen. But not really. I, I very willingly chose this and regretted it until six issues in. Um, but we are reviewing Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. And holy shit, y'all. This was a doozy. This was a doozy. I've come prepared with lots of thoughts. Very unusual for me. But how's everybody feeling? How was the week? How was the read? We're a couple before, days late. Before we do anything else i also want to shout out john higgins on colors because i think the colors on this book were next level oh absolutely particularly issue 11 when so much of it was white in antarctica i feel like higgins found a great way to give mood atmosphere and setting to all the characters i was really struck by how many different colors Night Owl appeared as in his all white snow costume in that issue where the background is white. For me, I was really like, oh, wow, there is an issue. There is a panel where he is Pepto-Bismol pink. And I did not even think, man, that guy's Pepto-Bismol pink because it just felt like the mood and it ruled. So, I mean, right. basically trying to get ahead of the allegations that I only talk about Alan Moore in this episode. <laughs> Because I have a lot of Alan Moore thoughts, and I just wanted right out of the gate. We also appreciate colorists. Absolutely. Doing the Lord's work out here. Color theory, as Dallas has explained over and over and over again, is very it's been complex. So long. It's been so long since Dallas's color theory corner. <laughs> I know. Dallas's color theory corner. Ew. <laughs> Oh, it's been so long, and I've forgotten it all. I so, know. We appreciate it. We appreciate you and all the I'm things a, you do for this podcast. You're holding us together. I'm a bad student. On my card, I just wrote color, question mark. And <laughs> Yeah, if you could see all of our notes, Anne has her index card, Dallas has his iPad, and I have a legal pad that is holding my entire yeah. world together. Ready to take these guys to court. Exactly, for my trauma. I'm charging reading this. For emotional damage, yeah. At the top yeah. of Alexis's, it says, Rorschach was right? Question mark? <laughs> and then she says, am I now an alt-right person? <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> Maybe Shut a up. homosexual must investigate further. <laughs> must. Have... Gasp. Definitely. Definitely. For sure. <laughs> what issue was that in when it was definitely like, oh, Rorschach's gay. <laughs> There's, oh. Oh. Huh. It was towards the end. There was a specific panel that I went, this bitch gay. <laughs> there was like a moment between him and Night Owl that was kind of sus. Yes. But um, I don't remember where the hell it was. Um, but yeah, him and Adrian, you know, um, we got our LGBT rep. Um, you know, we got our two gays. We got our dead lesbian. We got our other two dead lesbians. We're doing great. Wow. The Ellen, the Ellen of the um, G rocked this book. It's great. I felt like that little dog that says, I know what you are. 
with that panel of Rorschach. Or the little Italian man at the museum. Uh, he is how you say homosexuality. Uh, so for the listeners at home, my mother-in-law is someone who does not understand subtext. And she was trying to understand whether or not the concept of a beard existed during the Renaissance. And so she asked if Michelangelo had a wife while she was in the Sistine Chapel. And a little Franciscan monk that was there was like, eh, 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 looking around like Jesus was listening over his shoulder, like, oh, hmm, you can't say that. He was like, eh, and then he whispers, Michelangelo, he was a, a, a homosexual. And then my mother-in-law, bless her soul, said, well, I know he was gay. That's not what I was asking. <laughs> and this man's soul left his body, dear listener. It's just pearls. Okay. His little Catholic pearls. <laughs> uh, funny, funny. No more Americans. He's <laughs> threat to jail. Uh, not, my mother-in-law is the comedian. I'm just yeah. <laughs> Ooh, Spicy take. So, Lex, mm-hmm. this is your episode. You pick Watchmen. You start us out. Absolutely. Initial thoughts of Watchmen. So I got to say, right off the top, I was about six issues into this, and I was thinking to myself, you know, this is kind of good, kind of not, kind of want to jump off a cliff, maybe jump in front of a bus. I don't know. Um, We were talking about it Sunday afternoon, where we were at, how we were feeling, and I was really skeptical. I was like, you know what? Just take one for the team. I'm coming off that high from recording All-Star Superman last week. I'm feeling good. I just got to also try to give this one my all. And then it proceeded to punch me in the throat in the last six issues. It literally, when I tell you, was a full 180 for me because I was just not feeling it, not vibing with the story a ton. Like I could see how people were liking it, but I just didn't really quite get it. And then all the different plot points and it just, to quote Dallas, Alan Moore turned up the gear and hit, he floored it for the last six issues. And all the different characters, they all their moving parts made sense to me. The story started to make sense. All the different subtle plot driving points that had been dropped along the way started to get tied up for me. And it was so fun because it also kind of reminded me of the fact that this was also a murder mystery, which is something I genuinely really do like also, but just a really horrible one with lots and lots of twists and turns <laughs> that I didn't necessarily ask for. <laughs> but overall, it was crazy to me. And also, I mean, I feel like a broken record, but going into this, I had literally no idea about any of the characters any of the story didn't even know that it had a hbo thing movie i don't know tv show who knows couldn't tell you no idea no idea till literally this morning and i was like oh that's interesting and so i just i got a lot of thoughts i got a lot of thoughts on the characters they're all pretty fun also all pretty horrible at the same time lots of different social commentaries with those and I'm excited to see what everybody thought kind of bounce off of each other. But what do you guys think? I, (laughs) 
Watchmen is an interesting beast because I remember before I got into comics, I remember being exposed to Watchmen through the Zack Snyder film. And I remember <laughs> Dallas is for everyone, you know, cause this is not a visual medium. Dallas just made a, a face, um, very, very repulsed, very, um, very unsatisfied with that answer. And you know, it's, it's sad, but it's true. It's like, <laughs> if you've ever personally been victimized by a Zack Snyder film, please raise your hand. But I remember seeing it in front of some, some DVD I was watching. I remembered watching the, um, the trailer and they made such a big deal of like one it's one of the most acclaimed graphic novels of all time and i was i was watching it and there's like just this giant blue naked guy um something something space guy with a movie mask I, i'm like i'm sure it's interesting but it never never spoke to me i didn't jump out of my seat like trying to check it out and i would my first experience with watchmen is a blur to me because i don't even remember how long into my comic reading it was when I picked this up. I don't remember how old I was when I actually read this for the first time. I bare I barely even remember if like I finished it the first time. There might be a few um failed launches when I was trying to go through this. I just I it was such <laughs> an enigma where I'm like, I don't know how to feel about this comic. Everyone really, really likes it. And it's a fine enough murder mystery for me. And the the characters are interesting, but I remember just like it wasn't clicking. I'm like something something here is still up. You know, it was probably I'm sure Dallas, you're going to talk about this a little bit too. But being younger and trying to find comics for the first time, this wasn't what I expected. This wasn't what I was used to when it came to other comics, and that just kind of put me off. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe it's not for me. Maybe I'll maybe it's for other people. I'm not interested. I'm here for for superheroes smashing things and you know, Superman against Lex Luthor, Batman against Joker, that kind of fun stuff. So I just put it away. And over the years, just listening from people talk about the book and then having this moment to go through and read it again with a like fresh mind, a fresh take on it, especially in today's political atmosphere. Sad to say, I feel like it matters more now than ever. And it's, <laughs> it's, a bit disheartening sometimes just the the pure sense of nihilism that can come from this book it's it's a heavy read it's a hard read but it's genuinely amazing and i can't wait to go back and read it again actually because i'm sure i'm going to pick up on more the second the next time through this because this felt like my first real time reading the book to be completely honest i knew the entire story i'd gone through it before but this felt like the first time i was taking the story as a whole the way it was intended and i i'm that danny devito meme where he's like oh my god i get it now it's it's just nice to see how much i've grown as a reader and yeah i'm really really excited for this conversation i think this is gonna be one of our most fun episodes yet so my wife has often asked me why I like to buy and keep books instead of just going and getting them from the library, reading them once and having that story with me forever. She says, I know you don't forget the story, so why do you like to revisit it? And I think Watchmen is the perfect case study for why I think it is important to revisit media throughout your life. Because like Anne said, when I first read this comic, I was 17 years old. My political understanding was, I'm from Utah. Everyone I know votes Republican. 
And so I vote Republican. And that is as much as I've ever thought about anything politically ever. And I read this book and I said, wow, superheroes can be morally gray. That was really interesting. And what an ending. That was a good book. I'll put it up on the shelf. I understand why everyone liked that so much. And I did not think about it much beyond that ever again until I reread it this week. This is just my second read through of Watchmen ever, which seems off. It seems like I should have read this book more, but this is just number two. And kind of like you were saying, and I knew the story well enough to really see just how well structured the plot was to see the foreshadowing that was coming. But more so than that, I got what Watchmen was about for the first time. I read this book and I'm at a place now in my life where I have developed a viewpoint on the world. I have developed an ability to read between the lines and see other people's viewpoints on the world. And having just gone through Alan Moore's Maestro course over on BBC, I have a pretty good idea of Alan Moore's worldview and what he thinks about everything. And so reading Watchmen this time through honestly felt like drinking from the fountain of the gods. Just holy cow. Not only is this one of the greatest graphic novels of all time, this is one of the greatest novels of all time. And I would argue this is one of the most important texts from the 20th century about the 20th century. I think something that we run into a lot when we're writing about our moment is the inability to understand the full scope and ramifications of what is happening and provide an interesting perspective. But Alan Moore demonstrated in 1986 and 1987 that not only did he understand what America had been since World War II, but he understood what it was and the potential it had to become exactly what it had fought against 40 years before with the rise of fascism, consumerism, individualism, all the things that we are now seeing again in America, things that were deeply rooted at this time. Watchmen had a razor sharp perspective on a just a devastating blow to America using the symbols we created for ourselves. And so while, yes, I agree that there is interesting commentary on the superhero genre, there are interesting tools provided to comic book creators in the superhero genre of moral, morally gray characters, the approach to real world problems in comics that Watchmen ushered in. Ultimately, I think much of that is set dressing over a much more profound and deeply impactful text that I think if we can pull it out of its superhero trappings a little bit, understanding these as archetypal characters, we can really get to what the story is about. Because as fun, spoiler, as the I did it 35 minutes ago punch in the nads is, I do not think that Alan Moore wrote this text to get that punchline. I think that he wrote that punchline to keep us going so that we could take in the philosophy of this book. So I too am very excited to talk about Watchmen. 
well, well, well. Leave it to Dallas to make it that much deeper of a conversation that I wasn't even thinking about. So kudos to you. This just got interesting. <laughs> um, for me, I, I feel like the best place in my mind is to kind of start with introducing the characters. Because, I mean, very obviously, they're what drives the whole the whole run. Um, so gonna <laughs> gonna be completely honest. It was super funny. So I read through this. I'm now realizing after reading this that maybe my uh, reading pronun- pronunciation in my mind may need a little bit of work because I like read it and then I also watched a really awesome YouTube video that Dallas sent me and I was like, oh, that's how you say all their names because <laughs> my mind will just like autofill like. Like, I can't even tell you what Rorschach's name was before I watched that video, just with some letters. And I was like, I know the type of test that he's taken and whatever, but it's just that name, you know. Or Ozzy Mendeus absolutely wrecked my mind. I cannot, cannot even get through that one. But um, hmm. You want to know something fun? Mm-hmm. When we go to Egypt, we're going to go to Karnak that <sighs> Ozymandias created. <laughs> that this Antarctic base was based on. Ramses oh II, the Egyptian pharaoh yeah. that he styled himself after. We're going to get oh to see hell. all that. Oh, my hell. We're going to take a picture and post it on our Twitter. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so we kind of, I feel like for me, the best place to start is probably with Rorschach himself. Because he, Ooh, whoa. whoa. Flag on the play. Flag on the play. What? Flag on the play. Yes. Yeah. Rorschach's backstory is until issue six. The book literally gives an issue for every character. I'm going to give the whole backstory, you asshole. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there's an order that the book goes in introducing these characters. And Rorschach's the last one. Like, issue one introduces the plot, and it's told through Rorschach's POV. But Rorschach's issue isn't until issue six. That's what I was going to go with. Whose episode mm-hmm. is this? Yeah. All right, all, right, all right. My bad. My bad. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, who would you start with? Nope. I'm sorry. I'm being quiet. Nope. <laughs> okay. Things okay. heating up on the Comics Collective. I know. Goodness. Some sibling banter over here, right? But no, he's right. I mean, with our first issue, we do get our introductory to kind of the setup of the story. So we're um, basically placed in, I would say, an alternate New York City, right? Is that, am I right into saying that one? Um, yeah. Alternate reality, different world, New York City. We are on the the streets and we kind of jump right in to a murder scene. And we're following these two detectives through this murder. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's a shame. This poor guy got basically what we think we got. He got tossed right out of his apartment window fell all the way down and hit the ground tragedy and Anne is miming it all out for us it's fabulous basically smushed on the pavement and we are introduced and kind of pick up on the fact that this character um is known as uh edward blake or the comedian we find out he is an ex kind of superhero or vigilante justice um, member of this team. And 
He's kind of the worst. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Not sad he's dead. Um, <laughs> but, and we kind of are starting to pick up these bits and pieces of these different characters. So we're introduced to Rorschach because he appears in the apartment. That's where I was going with that. Side eye, Dallas. Um, and Rorschach kind of picks up the case in his little creepy wannabe Batman perusing around the 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 building tops of New York City. And he pays a few visits to other characters that we are kind of introduced into um, a character named Night Owl, or he used to be Night Owl. His name's Dan. Can't remember his last name. Sorry, Dan. Um, he's also kind of the worst, but in a nice way. <laughs> I like Dan. I believe, his name, I believe his name is Dan the Impotent. <laughs> Dan can't get it up. Um... Poor guy. Tragedy. I, 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 it was really funny because I like later in my notes that I have talking about <laughs> that unfortunate situation, I was trying to be really nice. And I said, him and Laurie start a relationship, but he struggles with intimacy. And I said, I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we get introduced to Night Owl. He is retired he's trying to mind his business he's like please leave me alone i'm just trying to live my life and we move on from him and also roshak pays a visit to another member of this past hero quote-unquote team named ozzy mendeus billionaire like tycoon got too much time on his hands not very friendly in the beginning that was my initial thoughts. I was like, okay, this guy's a little too, little too big for his britches, but whatever. Um, not really get much from him. And then we roll right into Dr. Manhattan, or as I have in my notes, Big Blue PP, because <laughs> homeboy <laughs> loves to not wear any pants yeah, ever. I was going to say, another, another boy who is too big for his britches. <laughs> Literally, just refuses, not to, just refuses to wear them. No britches. Um, <laughs> and also there's this oh go down go there is a scene in the hbo show where <laughs> the silk specter who is now a middle-aged woman because the show takes place a few decades later oh interesting she has not seen dr manhattan since he leaves at the end of this book mm-hmm and she's feeling lonely, and so she pulls out the biggest blue dildo I have ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> and so there's just this frame of her holding what is an 18-inch blue penis. And I was like, I mean, yeah, if we see that he can do whatever he wants with his body. Oh. But there's this scene, because she's like a super secret spy, basically. And so she opens up the case, and she starts assembling something, and you're like, is she building a gun? And then it is. <laughs> It's a different kind of blaster, gentlemen. And Lori. Lori, Lori, Lori. Holy well. It's a if you haven't watched that show, it is a fantastic show. I know I didn't sell it very well just now, but incredible, incredible show. Oh, anyway. you like the show. The television show, yes. I thought it was incredible. Okay. Oh, is there a movie also? Yes, the movie is not good. Oh, that might be where I'm getting confused. Okay, because I thought it was bad. There's a but movie. I don't want to know. The movie is not good. In my opinion, the television show is excellent, and it is a sequel. And then Tom King also did a Rorschach sequel comic that is 
very, very good. But we have questions about that later. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm derailing No, this. no, that's all right. It's all right. Um, yeah, I mean, also, just rolling right off of that into Lori. Holy shit. Got a lot of thoughts about her. <laughs> um, she got a lot. She got a lot to unpack. Poor, poor Lori. <laughs> I understand why she is the way she is. She's got a lot. Um, she is, as Dallas said, the Silk Spectre, also retired. She is <laughs> referred to as, in the beginning of this, as basically Dr. Manhattan's lady friend. Basically to keep him docile <laughs> and where they want him, which I'm like, damn, that's a lot on your conscience. <clears throat> yep. It's a good job description. <laughs> Jealous. <laughs> but not really. Um so yeah, we the the beginning of this is basically just Rorschach hunting down everybody, talking to them, being like, I think there's somebody out to get us. And they're all like, Yeah, you're a crazy son of a bitch. Get out of here. Like, we don't wanna we don't know what you're talking about. Um and it kind of just sets the scene for these characters, what they are, who they are, what they stand for, um, how they got to the points where they are today, and yeah, it kind of jumps a little bit like present, past, pretty fun. Um, who do we want to go into? The comedian. Now yeah, now I'm trying to follow. I vote the comedian. Okay. I want to hear your thoughts about the comedian, both of my you, and then I have a spiel. My thoughts about the comedian. Um, he has a horrible backstory. Can I can understand why he is the one who got murdered first. Sorry, hate to say it. He's a gross man. He is a entitled piece of shit who is basically just the epitome of like, I'm a superhero. I can do whatever the F I want. What are you going to do to stop me? Hmm. And I have the government stand behind me and I'm kind of their henchman. So hmm. hate to be you. Um, and we kind of get to see his mental decline also a little bit. in I think the second issue, second or third issue. Um, and I, something that I feel like in his later years in life, I don't want to say he has regret but I feel like he's starting to see the grand scheme of things towards the end and becomes a little deranged and unhinged, but probably because he committed a lot of war crimes. So I don't feel bad for the guy. <laughs> I hate to say you got what you deserved, but that's how I feel. Tragedy. Yeah. It's the comedian is an interesting character because he's so one note for such a long time until he has that one change in character. And that's like the only time you really see him slip a little bit. And it's really just looking at him as a character. It's just, he's, he's interesting enough, but I feel like he really, really works as a great analog for you know, it's, it's not exactly subtle. He is the blood on America's hands. He is the person who, bought into the ideology who followed it through and just shows no remorse for it. He is the person who's like, we did what we need to do to, you know, because we had to, but he's, he's interesting. Cause he's a character that doesn't buy into any philosophy. He does it because he does it. It's like, you get a lot of people where it's like, they'll buy into militaristic propaganda and now how they, 
that'll be what leads them into that path. And then they'll get into that path and they'll be like, this is awful. I regret it. But he is, he is that idea. He is that manifestation of what our true purpose is, regardless of the people there, how they feel about it. He is the embodiment of that purpose. And I like that moment when he has in the second issue where he has the, the come to Jesus moment only after he realizes what Ozymandias is going to do. And I don't think it's because he's regretful or he thinks that it's a step too far. I think if anything, he regrets that it's going to be against America itself. I think this is the moment where he realizes that he's, he's done for because what Ozymandias is trying to do is a direct push back against him. And it's, it's a horrific act. And he only sees it as a horrific act because he knows very specifically he is going to be the victim of it. And so I, it was an interesting character moment. And I, I was, I was hoping I'd have time to read it again before the show. Cause I was kind of thinking about this in the car ride on the way home today. It's like, that's how that scene is playing in my head to me. You, you guys might have different, opinions on that one but i felt like that was a a selfish moment of a a character turn because i don't think that character had the potential to be anything anything else because you know he's a character who just he just existed until he found that purpose until he decided that he was going to be the one to step up and just completely soak his hands in in blood it's I I don't know. I feel like Dallas is going to go in a spiel and I think it's going to help me cement some of my own opinions because I feel like that was a little bit all over the place. I, I think you hit it right on the head when you said it is not subtle that the comedian is the avatar for America in this mm-hmm. book. Right. He is a war hero in World War Two. He is a war hero in Vietnam. Vietnam changes him but it only accentuates the evil that was already there. And then he brings that evil home with him and he carries it out on American soil under the name of patriotism. Right. And I think what that says to us looking at the comedian as Americans is that our golden age in quotes, the forties through the fifties into the sixties that Ronald Reagan tried to sell us as the nostalgic golden era that Donald Trump wants to make America great again to go back to this era. What Watchmen says is that that era was being run by evil, violent rapists who were just given a worst cause to aim that violence at. And so they came across as heroes. It is not that America was a golden land of opportunity for anyone other than white cishet men. It was that those men for a glimmering moment had something more evil than them to hit hard. And we all have remembered with nostalgia, which I loved the use of Adrian's perfume nostalgia throughout this book mm-hmm. to be like, we are remembering this time period incorrectly. We are looking back at it. We are looking back at the best generation. We named them the best generation. (laughs) And it's wrong. That's not how these people were. These people were just as bad as people in the 80s. They just get to be remembered more kindly. But I think what issue two does so well is demonstrate how the Vietnam War really was a breaking point for America. 
where the comedian in this scene with the woman that he has impregnated when she confronts him and she says like, no, you don't get to forget me. Like you don't get to forget Vietnam, America. You don't get to walk away from what you did here. The war crimes that were committed here for what? For your own imperialistic desires? You don't get to forgive me, forget me. And the comedian kills this woman with saying like, nope, I am going to forget it. And she just, she has this chilling line though before where she says, no, I don't think you will ever forget. You will tell yourself you forgot, but you will carry your scars from me forever. And then to literalize that because it's a comic book, she does scar his face. But you then see the comedian from that moment on is pretty mask off. He does not pretend to be some golden boy anymore. He is not secretive about who he is. He is in the streets shooting at rioters because they do not want it except fascist police. And I think one of the most stirring panels, pair of panels in this entire book come from a conversation between Night Owl and the comedian. And I think these are the perfect characters to do this because Night Owl being the the impotent neoliberal the come on let's just meet each other in the middle just gets dragged along for the fascism because he doesn't have enough of a backbone to stand up to it uh the comedian says well me i kind of like it when things get weird you know i like it when all the cards are on the table night owl says but the country's disintegrating what's happened to america what's happened to the american dream and the comedian turns to him with smoke behind him, a shotgun in hand. Said, it came true. You're looking at it. Now, come on. Let's really put these jokers through some changes. And that just it just stuck with me. I Like I said, mm-hmm. I, I know this isn't news to anyone else. But I finally feel like I read Watchmen for the first time. When I read this issue and I saw what Alan Moore was saying about America in the 20th century and the stories we've told ourselves, the reality of what happened and how we are viewed from the outside looking in Alan Moore being a British comics creator. And I think the most interesting wrinkle to the comedian for me comes from the last page of issue two where Rorschach is telling a story and he says Blake understood treated it like a joke but he understood he saw the cracks in society saw the little men in masks trying to hold it together he saw the true face of the 20th century and chose to become a a reflection a parody of it no one else saw the joke that's why he was lonely heard joke once man goes to doctor says he's depressed says life seems harsh and cruel says he feels all alone in a threatening world where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says, treatment is simple. Great clown Pagliacci is in town tonight. Go and see him. That should pick you up. Man bursts into tears, says, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. And so this idea that the comedian became this because he Mm -hmm. saw that this was what America really was. And if he was going to be held up as a symbol for America, he was going to do it honestly. 
he wasn't going to pretend that he was anything other than exactly what he was. I just, I think that is crazy. <laughs> I think that is pretty nuts, Alan Moore. The the prose in this book is so <clears throat> so beautiful. There's so many. Listen, there's um, Kendra a lot of thoughts about how well the movie ad- adapted some of these, but I think there's some of those big lines that really carried over. That was one of the ones that stuck with me when I watched the movie for the first time. It stuck with me when I read the book this time. It's just, it's incredible. I feel like in the movie, it's devoid of most, not most of the meaning, but it doesn't hit as hard, but it's one of those lines where you just like, it's, Oh my God. And actually you talk, you reminded me about the, the Pagliacci, um, the quote, I was looking over those panels again, and those are the panels where he goes through the process of like his entire his entire life, his disintegration, and I think it. I'm gonna cement my thoughts that 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 change he went through was selfish. I think he had that breakdown because he realized that you know someone's coming to kill Pagliacci, and he's Pagliacci. <laughs> very, 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 very nifty. S- sucks, sucks to be a clown. <laughs> yeah crazy you were not just a clown you was the whole circus (laughs) exactly exactly um kind of to move the on with the story a little bit though um with issue three it's kind of where we start to get more of dr manhattan's story dr manhattan and laurie specifically we start to see like the downfall of their relationship. Laurie's starting to basically come to the edge with Dr. Manhattan. She's over it. She's so mad that he is just so disconnected from reality because he is this almighty being above her Mm -hmm. and above everyone else. And so she leaves. And we also get these side panels along that that movement of her leaving of um, Dr. Manhattan's original girlfriend or partner um basically and it it took me a minute to realize that that's who she was and i think that's obviously kind of the point um talking to a reporter about cancer and her having cancer and this reporter now hindsight obviously hindsight 2020 is like feeding her all of these like oh well did you know so and so who you both used to be around Dr. Manhattan also has cancer and died of cancer. And we're seeing these bits and pieces of like the doubt being put into Dr. Manhattan as a character. And after Laurie runs out of their shared home together, she goes to Dan, little Mr. Little Mr. Owl and basically just trauma dumps on this poor, poor little man. And he's like, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, like basically, I, the thing that was so funny to me reading this, and I feel bad because it's very, it's a very emotional part for Laurie. She's her world's falling apart around her. And he's like, he goes, How do you like your coffee? And she goes, Oh, yeah, please, two sugars, please. And he goes, Oh, um, well, we only have one. And she goes, That's fine. Like, I don't literally don't care. That's not at Let's. all what I'm trying to get at here. Did you notice that it's because Rorschach took all of his sugar in the yes. first issue? Did you notice yeah. that? Yeah. Outstanding. 
And yeah, Rorschach taking the sugar, eating his beans, just stealing everything because he's just a homeless hooligan. <laughs> just crazy. I ate, I ate a can of cold beans once just because I was in a rush, and I just paused and I went, Herm, <laughs> just, <laughs> just to be like Rorschach for a moment. I was like, What am I become? <laughs> just, like, just the 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 word. Hmm, that's that's Rorsch- mm. Rorschach to a T. Actually, that's <laughs> there you go, Merm. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. And then just to have like the panels alongside of Doctor Manhattan's interview, and then also Laurie and Dan on their little adventure walk down this really spooky, scary alley. Um, I just really liked the structural points of this part of the story. I thought that was very interesting to kind of like overlap these two points, very important stories of these two characters. Um, Because you can really just see like Dr. Manhattan is just robotic. Like he's just going through the motions. He's like the part where he's putting on like the suit while Laurie's over talk, like talking over that panel of like, he doesn't care about anything human. Like he doesn't care about how we dress. And it's like him, auto putting on this suit so that he can go to this interview so he doesn't have his pee-pee out on live television and um and then we also see like Lori and dan basically like reliving their vigilante glory days in their mind of like oh this is really exciting in this alley we're gonna get mugged but little do they know like we're, we were heroes one time. Like, ooh, we're the old... It's like the when your grandma was like, back in my day. It's like, no. You're retired for a reason. Quit it. Um, but yeah, so we get that story. And then also the bombshell drop on live television with Dr. Manhattan when the reporter is like, do you know that everyone around you has cancer? And everybody just loses their mind. Loses their mind. And I remember like... Obviously, it was a couple of days ago. But, like, when I read that for the first time, I was like, no, Mr. Radiation Man is giving everyone cancer. No. And it's just so – I I hate to say that it's funny because, obviously, cancer is not a funny thing. But in the Harley Quinn TV show where she shoots that one villain with the cancer ray and they just all lose their shit. And he goes, I wish you would have just shot me with a normal gun. This is so much worse. And then like runs out. She goes, I'm sorry. Oh, that- just, it's just not a funny thing, but it's funny at the same time. The cancer, right? No. The the only funny thing about it is I'm pretty sure this is the third week in a row where we talked about the cancer because It doesn't stop being irrelevant to what we're talking about. On the, no. the cancer, right? Maybe I should just get a picture of a cancer ray tattooed at this point. It's the funniest just, thing that's every ever time- happened. Every time we can make a cancer ray reference, we just hit a button and then cancer we can have like a sound effect like cancer ray. Harlequin's cancer ray, everybody. Perfect. No one will possibly be offended by that. No. They'll be fine. It's great. But basically, shit hits the fan. Dr. Manhattan's like, WTF, I'm out, man. I'm sorry, I'm leaving. Going to Mars. Leave me alone. Don't talk to me ever again. Alexis, that. you said you have a lot of thoughts about Lori. I'd be very interested to hear them. Same. So Lori, I feel, I mean, she's very obviously the main female character for this whole story. 
she is kind of in an interesting position for me because notoriously comic books don't give a shit about their female characters. And I would say this story, in my amateur opinion, please don't be mean to me on Twitter, um, only likes Laurie 25% of the time. Because I feel like every shitty thing that could possibly happen to a person happens to Laurie. Like, she's brought up with this story of her mother's horrible assault at the hands of a team member. And that's instilled to her at a very young age. But her mother is also like, but how great would it be if you took over my spot as the Silk Spectre? And, like, having been a little girl, (laughs) like, growing up and wanting to be just like your mom, I could... I can totally see of like how awesome that would be. But with you knowing this knowledge of like this horrible thing happened to my mother because of this huge part of her life and this very important member of her team that basically was never addressed um, by other members. It was swept under the rug. It's a huge point of contention in their relationship. And then to later find out that like, Laurie's mother and the comedian have like the that weird relationship. Like Laurie's mother basically views, and it's like so like strange for me. It's so strange for me because I feel like reading for me was like Laurie's mother views her past, like her glory days, through rose-colored glasses, and it's just like. Everything that Lori goes through is, like, basically the deconstruction of, like, her entire life and her entire innocence as a whole, which I feel like was very icky for me. I was like, why Why does Lori have to be the one that has all these things that she has to deal with? Like, why can't we ruin the owl man's life? <laughs> Come for him. Like, uh, the worst thing that could happen to a man is he can't get it up. Passing the time to Anne. She has her hand up. I have theories about the purpose of Lori and her mother in the story, especially mm-hmm. in regards to what you said, Lori's um, decreasing innocence throughout the story, and also in terms of their relationship to the comedian directly. And it's the way I've taken it is if we were going to take the comedian as that direct personification of that that darker side of America and that militarism you get to like the idea of america as a militaristic country a domineering culture and it goes and domineering cultures cultures trace their roots back to you know like the start of patriarchal systems and those systems are there to benefit that they're they're there to benefit the patriarchy and you still have today women who find themselves supporting that system because they're either unaware of how it is actually affecting them in this case, Lori, or women who support the system because even though it is actively hurting them, it is still giving them what they think is a better life than what they could have otherwise. And that would be Lori's mother. Like, Lori became the costume fighter because she liked it for her image. It gave her respect. It gave her attention. It gave her a career. And so even though um, it's, you know, she's there with people who obviously don't respect her because the comedian assaults her. Um, and even heard a justice after I heard a justice's um, response after 
Lori's mother. I forget. I the original Silk Spectre. I keep forgetting her actual name. Her name's Sally. Um, Sally. Yeah. Even after that attack, the way that Herded Justice still kind of regards her with like this disgust, like he has no no yeah. interest in her. She sticks around with it anyway because it's a bad system, but it's one that's able to benefit her as long as she plays along. And can, yeah, can I go add- for it? 14 seconds you said hooded justice has no interest in her i don't know if you read the text page hooded justice and like the metropolitan man or whatever they were in a couple and she was their beard no yep. oh, i'm sorry yep <gasps> interrupting i didn't know no, if those the viewers knew that are important what <laughs> yeah the text pages they i think um dallas you said it wonderfully in text words like they're not terribly important but if you read them they enhance what you've read yeah yes it's, And so I think Sally has that. So it's like, even though this is a system that's abusing her because it has done things to push her life forward, she still has that affection for it, which is why she still has the affection for the comedian at the end. It's why she still has um, the the insistence that her daughter follow in her footsteps because she's like, it's a bad system, but it worked for me. And I like the fact that Lori's father was the comedian because, you know, all the daughters of that system, whether they like it or not, are going to have that evil looming before them that's Mm -hmm. what came before them that's what brought them to where they are now and it's something that you know everyone has to to deal with just like we exist in a system that has preyed upon so many women and different minorities before and that is part of our heritage part of our blood and it's something that everyone has to reckon with in their own time and Lori realizing the comedian is her father feels like a woman's um, journey of journey to the loss of innocence. I think you put it absolutely perfectly, Lexi, where it's just like she realizes as it goes, because at the first, when it begins, she has no like interest. She's like, yeah, I did this because it was fun and my mom wanted me to and mm-hmm. I wanted to follow my mom's footsteps, yada yada. But then as she goes along, she starts to realize just how fucked up everything is. And it's it's a lot to take in. And it's you can get to the point where you start to argue and well there's a question about this later so we can talk about how we feel alan moore handled the like two and a half female characters in this book but it's one of those things where it's like a lot of times the evils of society can fall squarely on the shoulders of women and a lot of time that gets represented like this in the media and we have to figure out did this accurately was was this necessary for the story and I feel like if anyone agrees with like my perspective on the characters, I think it might be it's I think it's worth talking about. I think it's definitely a trope to use female characters like this, but I think it's I think it works to tell the the story that Alan Moore was trying to tell. And and sorry, I just like interjected in the middle of your Lori no. thoughts. I'm so sorry. No, I mean you put it perfectly. That's exactly my thoughts on it too. Like I I remember like the the feeling that I had when like it was revealed that the comedian was her father, I was like, oh, I need to put this down and take a lap around the house. I was like, this just feels like mm-hmm. the ultimate gut punch, and it's portrayed exactly like that with her in the story. Like she is so betrayed, she's so ruined by that, um, as one would be. But it, I just feel like. I don't know. I didn't I didn't love her story a ton, but at least we had a female character, which it feels the bar is so low. The bar is so low. <laughs> the bar is in the dirt. The bar doesn't exist. Yeah. But 
that's my thoughts on Lori. <laughs> you two just melted my whole damn brain. I'm going to need a minute to think about the relationship of Lori, Sally, the comedian, and women in America. That was so smart, man. That was so smart. I did not pick up on any of that subtext, and I am so grateful to you for teaching me that. That was so cool. Thank you. Mind blown. You two are awesome. (laughs) See, when you get so little with women, you got to like... Even if it's not there, I'm just going to imagine it is. <laughs> so I'll be like, it works. I got my crumbs, but they're nice crumbs. They're good. I can turn these into a whole sandwich. Let's go. Um, one thing that I think is interesting from issue three, mm-hmm. and then I might jarringly transition us towards a talk about Dr. Manhattan. Yes. Is the use of the pirate comic in issue three where the lone sailor who has seen all the horrors of the world being his ship, having been destroyed by the black freighter from hell, right? He clings to the woman on the mast of his ship and she keeps him afloat and he decides to cover her eyes with seaweed. So she doesn't have to see the horror of it all that immediately you turn the page and it's Dr. Manhattan like putting his hands on Lori's face while they're having intercourse, right? And so the pirate comic is shown to us in this juxtaposition to be this is art within this world that people are reading, but it is going to tell you what emotions you are supposed to feel, what themes you are supposed to feel about any given moment. And I would love to take the pirate comic all the way out of its context and just read Mm -hmm. it through because it has a very interesting narrative. Very interesting bunch. It would be a well-renowned comic on its own. And it just happens to be like a little spice that's added in here (laughs) to play up the themes. And something that Alan Moore talked about in his Maestro series was that to make a convincing world, you need to add things from real worlds. And the real world has art the real world has music the real world has like newspapers and he said you should have your stories interacting with artifacts within that world because it makes it feel tangible when tolkien adds a song you really believe that those dwarves wrote that song and there's a culture that created that kind of music and so in watchmen people create comic books if you read the headlines from the newspapers on that newsstand it lets you know what People are thinking about what's going on, what normal people think is happening. And so I think the inclusion of the pirate comics is a really, really well thought out thing that not a lot of people have tried to do again since Watchmen. With Watchmen hitting the comics industry like such a bomb, I am surprised so few people have tried to incorporate their own version of a pirate comic in their comic. It's it's one of those things that probably is like a lot of writers kind of put off as like more trouble than it's worth because it's like I can put out my um my my B comic action comic of the week you know where it's like they're gonna go in they're gonna punch the bad guy it's good writing one story is hard enough much less trying to write two stories simultaneously that tie into each other like threads in a quilt you know it's I think it's easy to <laughs> it's not easy it's 
I don't think we can understate how difficult it is to narr- tell those two narratives so perfectly as to be seamlessly integrated into one whole piece and it not feel any different and for it to actually enhance both of them. Yeah. I think this segues better into just to talk about the construction and structure of Watchmen for a minute. Mm -hmm. Something that Alan Moore talked about with the strength of comic books is that it is the only medium that truly has three tracks happening all at once frozen in time. You have the text balloons, so the dialogue, you have narration, and you have art. And all three of those can tell separate stories at the exact same time. And Watchmen is a perfect example where each of these little panels on this nine panel grid have multiple stories happening all at once. And in less talented hands, that can sometimes create a jumbled page and a hard to follow story. Mm -hmm. But in Alan Moore's hands, it is a seamlessly layered piece that you can only truly get the full picture with all three tracks playing at the same time. And it's, it's incredible. Um, Watchmen has a really big reputation for its nine panel grid structure. People have been aping it ever since. Uh, Grant Morrison made a whole comic making fun of the fact that Watchmen has its nine panel grid. And I was consistently shocked at how not like it was always in a grid pattern, but there were tons of pages that were not the nine panel grid. They were still gridded out, right? Like that's clearly the format, but I think nostalgia and distance from the piece had rewritten my brain to be Watchmen is every single page is a nine panel grid because that's what other people who are aping Watchmen do. Whereas Mm -hmm. there are plenty of pages of Watchmen that are three panel grids, just like new frontier or any mix of like a six panel grid. You know, there's even a page that is it's a nine panel grid that is four, four and one giant at the bottom. Like there's still very inventive layouts from Dave Mm Gibbons. And I think calling it just the nine panel grid book is a disservice to his imagination and his pacing. Yeah. Shout out to the um, the 18 panel um, nightmare sequence where they Lori peels night um, night owl skin off and his costumes underneath. Beautiful. Rapid fire comics. But then also, Alexis, I would love to know. What was the impact for you when issue 12 was all full page splashes, destruction of New York City? Ah, boy, let me tell you. Because, oof. Something about this that really struck me was. How do I want to wear this? This wasn't necessarily a slow burn. I don't, that's not the right verbiage, but that's the verbiage I'm going to use. Because. Like, there is gore throughout. There is, like, that dirty, gringy, like, low-level crime that throughout the whole thing that talks about it a lot. But when we get to the deconstruction of New York City, it's like, holy shit. Like, everybody's dying. Millions of people are dying. This is complete destruction. Like, this is something to us, like, 
the full page spreads are intentional. Like this is something humongous that is happening to these people. And you can feel that just from the way that the art and the pages are laid out. Because to me, it's like you're seeing the whole picture. Like you're seeing the magnitude of this horrible situation, this horrible thing that has been set out on New York City by um, Ozzy Mendez. Spoiler alert. Don't know if we already said that. But um, cra- it was crazy. It was crazy to me. And then like the the shift back to the traditional nine after, I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. It just like makes you feel those pages even more. <sighs> it's so it's so so special. I want to talk can we talk a little bit about um Dr. Manhattan now? We can get to our, our favorite bird brain after this, but <laughs> Dr. Manhattan is arguably next to, you know, um Rorschach the most iconic character from this book. And Lexi, I need to know what you thought about this nuclear man. Ooh, okay. I thought that his story was very interesting. I loved, like, the setup. Is it issue five? Issue six? That's his issue. Is it issue five? I can't remember. Issue the one four that's is like, his issue. Oh, issue four. The one where it's like everything's happening all at once. Um, yep. that issue was so interesting to me. I really loved the way that that was set up of like seeing all the different moving pieces of his life and his story and like the background on how he became that character and how he went through his crazy radiation blast that basically sh- killed him but didn't kill him and made him into the only actual quote-unquote super being in this entire story like because everybody else is relatively normal they're all normal people that are dressed up running around doing crazy things but he is the superhero he is the image of a quote-unquote god-like being that is sent down to the world specifically to the united states which is very ironic and comes up very a lot to, to save all mankind. He's here to save the world. He's here to end Vietnam. Like, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. Like, he's our secret weapon. And we're going to keep him in this testing facility forever just to scare off any potential other people from trying anything with us. So when he leaves and is like, you know what? I'm tired of you people. I'm tired of things that are going on. I'm just going to go do my own thing. I feel like it was very apparent to me and something that I thought was kind of interesting was the commentary of using him as like a placeholder for other super beings that we're used to. I mean, like, obviously the first one that comes to mind because we literally talked about him last week is Superman. Like Superman is the almighty saves everything amazing do good character at the end of the day. He is the superhero. And when you get to look at that through Dr. Manhattan as a um, a lens, you kind of realize that like that idea necessarily isn't that great because he doesn't give a shit. <laughs> like Dr. Manhattan does not care about people. Like he has completely 
like diverted from any human being and he hasn't been able to make any connection in a really, really long time. Like he's just not capable of that. He doesn't think that way anymore because he's seeing everything. He's seeing everything all at once, which is insane. And so even just like with issue four, how he could see the relationships, like all of his relationships, he sees how they're end, they end when they start. And so he just goes into things like, yeah, okay, I don't really care. Like that, this is how it is. And so it's just so crazy. Um, and it comes up later a little bit too. I think it's Lori that says like, if you know these things are going to happen, why don't you change them? And he's like, well, I see, I see everything. Like, it's inevitable. I see everything. Why would I bother? Like, if that's how things are supposed to go, that's how things are supposed to go. And so I just feel like it's a very interesting comment, I guess, on like he actually probably would not be the best superhero in the world. Like he probably would be the worst. Like we don't want him. Take him back. <laughs> it's the sense of nihilism that runs through Dr. Manhattan's story, especially, is really interesting because that's exactly where Ozymandias wanted to put him. Because taking the world's biggest weapon, the biggest hero out of commission, takes something more than just chucking him out of the window. I liked so much that the plot beat that got hit here was, what if I just take away that little last bit of humanity he has left? What is the all-powerful walking, talking Superman when he does not give a shit? He's he's out of the picture. That's what he is. He goes to Mars and makes his little dream castle. And it's perfect. And he's happy. I love that the thing to put him over the edge, where it's like, we, it's easy, like, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this. He's a character who's on the verge of not caring, I think, when we first meet him. Because he is trying to juggle who he used to be versus who he is now. And it's two very completely separate individuals. And I don't think he can decide which side he wants. Like, Laurie is there to keep him grounded, to keep him rooted. And they make that very clear from the get-go. So the moment that he finds out that the other people who have also helped keep him grounded and rooted got cancer and he think it's, thinks it's because of him, that he plays on his care to sever that care forever. Because he's like, I'm not going to give anyone else cancer. I'm gone. I'm out. And then issue four is that entire process of him embracing that wild, fancy, fantastic side of him completely to the point where he's like okay i am omniscient i am everything i am everywhere this is this is who i am now and then when laurie comes back into his life later i like that she's the one who brings him back because he realizes that the importance of her life and the he's like you're so unique and special i was so unique and special everyone down there is so unique and special that's something worth preserving and it's it's an interesting character arc. You you mentioned that he's a great analog for Superman, and I do. When I first read the story years ago, I remember thinking very specifically he was definitely a. I read him as a parody of Superman as compared to the rest of the superhuman community, because it's it's the big joke where it's like, why do we need a Justice League if Superman's here? He can do everything and anything and everything. And so I liked the fact that this entire universe is so normal except for him because in reality that's how superman should be to like the dc universe or at least 
especially when he first came around and he was just absolutely an insane character. It's, it makes sense, but I'm not sure if you saw this in the video or any of your research. Did you know that the Watchmen characters are, um, analogs for Charleston characters that, um, did I say Charlton? What's Charlton? Charlton. Thank you. Charlton characters. So each one of them correlates with another comic book character that Alan Moore couldn't use for this because DC told him no. So you did see that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Just wanted to make sure. That's that's the cool. I couldn't imagine what the story would be like if he had to water it down just so he could use the DC characters. I don't think it would be anywhere near as memorable. So what do y'all think of Frozen ripping off issue four? Um, because right, you've got you've got one super powered character who, through a misunderstanding, severs their connection to humanity, and then they go out and they let it go, let it go, mm-hmm. and they build a giant castle to be alone in until that person comes back and helps bring them back to humanity. Quit it. I just think it was really bold of Disney. <laughs> to do that i would love for you to bring that up to disney i dare you see what they have to say about that i mean they already did it with incredibles is just watchmen for babies (laughs) where all the superheroes are outlawed and then there's a big twist at the end that the guy you thought was good this whole time is secretly got a giant Mm -hmm. doomsday device but the superheroes (laughs) win in that one instead of be complicit in genocide so there's a little bit different ending. It's it's a fair comparison, but I think one was definitely her dealing with the fact that she was gay. That was definitely a coming out moment. You ain't wrong. Subtext can be different, <laughs> but text is the same. Text is the same. Subtext. It's it's amazing how we can apply it different ways. But no, I think that's a fair point. My real question. I just when he was building his castle, my stupid brain just went like, let it go. Let it go. And I needed someone else to have that in their brain, too. As often as I like to talk about very silly things, I also will be like, hey, got a blue penis, though. (laughs) Like, there is a little part of me that is silly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not. It's like very important to dissect themes. Also, he nakey. Yeah, I'm not just Dr. Manhattan. Sometimes he (laughs) nakey. So something that I really thought a lot about was a Dr. Manhattan as the symbol for the atomic bomb, right? He literally carves the hydrogen symbol on his forehead. Hydrogen being at the heart of the atomic bomb. In case you didn't know, listener, he is employed in Vietnam. And that is what makes us win Vietnam in this universe. Whereas very pointedly, the atomic bomb was not used in Vietnam in our real world. Thank goodness. And, he transforms technology around him. The whole world basically hinges on his advent. And while, yes, there are atomic weapons in the world of Watchmen, I think it's pretty clear what Alan Moore is saying here, that the atomic bomb unlocked a whole new perception of reality and the world and brought us closer in our understanding of nature to God, but it froze us in time. It created this paradox of power that we have been grappling with ever since, and the world has never been able to be 
how it was before that was brought into it ever again. So I think that is a really interesting subtext going on with Dr. Manhattan. I think, like I said before, the comedian is America. Dr. Manhattan is the bomb. Ozymandias is like a neoliberal fascist. Rorschach is an alt-right conspiracy head. And then I think Lori and Dan are very much just like regular old liberals who are ineffectual and are like, this can't all be happening. It's like, oh, well, my my life keeps going well, so I guess I'll let you guys do crazy shit to keep the world running. But all that to say, my mind was really sparked this time through when I saw, once again, the panel of Dr. Manhattan being blown apart in the particle accelerator with his hands outstretched, the creation of Dr. Manhattan, this horrific moment that ruined this man's life. And I realized that I had seen that pose before in another Alan Moore book, Alexis and Anne, you'll remember this one. We did an episode with Matt where Swamp Thing rebuilds himself after an explosion. He rebuilds and realizes that he too is omniscient. But when he's in that pose, It is a very triumphant, excited moment. And it really got my gears turning about Alan Moore's evolving opinion about omniscience and its effect on humanity. Because in his earliest work, Miracle Man, omniscience is something that detaches you from humanity, but allows you to improve humanity in ways they couldn't improve themselves. In Swamp Thing, omniscience is something that beckons you away from humanity, but holding on to love and the people around us allows us to help society because we remain grounded through love. And in Watchmen, omniscience is a curse that will separate you from the people around you. And I think reading Watchmen immediately after All-Star Superman was such a gift because I was have been left with this conundrum that I want to talk about with you of whether I agree with All-Star Superman that someone as vile as Lex Luthor would be touched by omniscience. When he gets to see the world the way Superman does, he bursts into tears and he says, oh, this is what he sees every day. It's just us in here. We're all we've got. And it's a very sweet moment. It's if you could see the world through Superman's eyes, you would love the world how Superman loves the world. Whereas Watchmen says, if you could see the world how Dr. Manhattan sees, if you were omniscient like Dr. Manhattan, you would realize none of it matters and you would become infinitely detached. And so my question to you is, do you think omniscience would lead to the love of Superman or the detachment of Dr. Manhattan in a real-life setting? (sighs) Just flat-out asking us, are you nihilists or not? (laughs) Oh, no. I've always been more of an optimist, more of a believer in the good of people. I've always 
swayed towards the the idea that mm, there has to be something there i i want to it's it's like i'm not sure if it's like one of the it's not sure if i believe it or if i want to believe it but i want it to be the the former i want it to be the all-star version absolutely see i think that's the normal answer <laughs> i feel like everybody would want to view the world like Superman does. But I feel like with today's day and age and the things going on in life, I feel like it'd be very easy to go the other way. Can I loop in the end of Watchmen here for a second? Sure. So when these greatest minds, when Ozymandias and Dr. Manhattan come together and decide that the only way they're going to make the world better is through a horrendous display of violence to unite the world against a common enemy that is juxtaposed against our last scene at the newsstand where all of the little side human characters that we've met throughout this book that have just been commenting on everything there is a moment where a fight breaks out between a woman and her girlfriend and each of the characters that we have met so far decide that it is their obligation to intervene. No matter what else is going on, they have a responsibility to their fellow man to stop what's going on. And I think that that is the part that people miss in Watchmen. That there is a solution, but it is not easy. It is not push a button once. But the solution to the glaring nihilistic problems of the world, the pitch black that Rorschach sees, and I promise we'll circle back to that, is to say, I have a responsibility to my fellow man. I have a responsibility to make the world better within my sphere. These little characters that we saw that do not play with the world at the scale that Ozymandias and Dr. Manhattan do, they hold a power that Ozymandias and Dr. Manhattan never will to actually make the world tangibly better through their action. And I think what Alan Moore is saying is that we too have that power. I agree with that. I think the only, not the only, I think the most effective way that you can create positive change in your life is through direct action and conscious avoidance of inaction in your own life. There are opportunities presented every single day where you can get involved and help make the world a better place, make someone's world a better place every single day, or you can choose the easy route and not participate. And you can wait for people that are bigger than you to make decisions that will make the world better for you. And I, I'm just stunned that that that's right there in the book. It is right there. And it's even called out where one character says, don't you get involved? Don't you make other people's problems, your problems. And the therapist is like, I, I can't, I have to, I have a responsibility to my fellow man. Like it says it right in the book. And there's a question further down that's like, what do you think is the biggest thing people miss from Watchmen? Like, that's my answer. We'll come back to that. But I just, I think Dr. Manhattan is wrong. I think Ozymandias is wrong. 
I think when you look at the world from such a macro scale, you'll never be able to fix it in a lasting way. Beautifully, beautifully put. Thank you for that, Dallas. Anytime. <laughs> That's... I'm... I don't know why it's it's one of the scenes I read over. It's like I I didn't realize that that was the direct response to this because I wrote down on my card fascism nihilism. Is there a way out? Question mark. What is the solution? And you're you're so I read right over it and I didn't even realize. But it, it's so crazy that moment when the bomb goes off. And the um the newspaper salesman and the boy who's been there the entire time just reading comics. And they have that embrace. I was trying to find it because I think there was a moment I saw earlier in the book that like foreshadowed that a bit. Where he's like, in the end, there's like no no one's going to be there for you or something like that. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. But it's... <laughs> I don't know. It's it's interesting. Thank you for, for bringing that up and letting us think about that yeah scratch that off my card we got the answer so i have some thoughts about rorschach what you just said it the one thing that we haven't talked about yet was what i wanted to start with (laughs) all right bring us home lex talk to us about rorschach let's talk about his issue i'm sorry for taking us on this long and unexpected journey no, it's okay. When you said let's talk about his issue, my brain autofilled to thinking issues. I said he got a lot. He got a lot of issues. A lot of lots to unpack there. Um he is crazy. He is a crazy character who kind of is the driving point for a lot of this sleuthing, if you will. Um how do we wanna how do I wanna go about this character? Talk about how he's gay. <laughs> we got yeah. the rep. We got yeah. the rep in the book. Watchmen <laughs> confirmed woke comic. LGBTQI. Are you a homosexual? He is a, a, a homosexual. <laughs> okay, Lexi, you got this. He's a character who sees through a mask that's black and white. There's nothing here that we can dig into. Mm-mm. His life is black and white. That's the best way to put it. No, in be- nothing in between. No gray. Can't see any gray areas. Can I add the comic book commentary for Lex and the listeners before we keep going? Mm-hmm. So the character that Rorschach is based on, Lex, is the question who was one of the last crea- characters created by Steve Ditko, Spider-Man's creator. And Steve Ditko, at the end of his life, got very into the philosophy of a woman named Ayn Rand Rand, that said that there is no moral gray. There is good and there is evil. And they're just like cowards and weaklings that will not accept that something is either good or bad. And Ditko got really into this and it ruined his life. It made him a hermit who couldn't be around people because no one is all good, and so they are inevitably all bad. 
And Alan Moore, understanding this, made a stand-in for the question in Rorschach, who believes that the world is all good or all bad, and showed how destructive of a philosophy that is. Yeah, I think I think Alan did that well. <laughs> Rorschach is definitely the epitome of that. He is a character who has such a one-track mind way of thinking. And we do get to see, I feel like, kind of the reason why. Um, I mean, he basically, I mean, bottom line, bottom line, he has a very interesting way of thinking. He, very one-track minded, like I said. Um, the thing that, like, for some reason just hit me out of the, like, the first thing out of my mind is he loves to refer to people as parasites, but he is the, in my mind, the epitome of a parasite. Like, he just comes in, he steals your sugar and your beans, and then breaks some fingers and then leaves. Like, he's just using you mm-hmm. for your sugar and your beans. That's all I'm saying. He doesn't care about you. <laughs> why does that sound a little bit like when conservative moms are like, you know, if you give away the milk, why would he buy a cow? He's just using you for your sugar and your beans. <laughs> That's Dan and Lord right there. Just using you for your sugar and your beans. It's like um, our school, they're like, your virginity is like Doritos. You don't want to share your Doritos with everyone. He's like, don't share your, don't share your beans and sugar with everyone. Don't give your There's, sugar and your beans to your Rorschach. He wants Dan's sugar and beans. I mean, how many times do you have to break down somebody's door to, to do that? <laughs> There's um, poor Dan he's, just wants he's to be safe in his own home. Listen, when he put a cigarette out on that kid's eye, I was like, he's literally a neurodivergent minor. <laughs> oh no! I the okay. It's not a part that's supposed to be funny. But I laughed so hard when Moloch opened the fridge and he just jumped out like a goddamn gremlin. Yes. <laughs> and, and then he comes put back and there's in the, the note. Look. Yeah. <laughs> That's the second time he comes back. And he's supposed to note it. Look behind you. And he's. Uh, I like that he used the fridge as like this just instrument of psychological torture. He's like, he's you never psycho. know. I could be. I could be in the fridge. I could be behind the fridge. I could be on the fridge. I could be the fridge. You'll never know. You'll never see me coming. I'm Rorschach. Yeah. I mean, You'll never see me coming. I'm Rorschach. <laughs> he can't see him coming either. How is he supposed to see out of a leather face mask? <laughs> Doesn't have any holes. It's not a mask. It's not a mask. It's his face. It's his skin. Yeah. yeah. Made out of a lady's dress. There's, um, I love it. There's so many psychologists. No. You can tell why the psychologist was eager to jump on this because this was like a psychologist gold mine. This was like this <laughs> dude's wet dream. He's like, I've been waiting my entire career for this man. For this man to come in and ruin my marriage. <laughs> you want to know something that I really liked about Rorschach? And I only learned this through Alan Moore's Maestro series. The story about Kitty Genovese, the woman who was killed while all her neighbors watched and did nothing. Mm -hmm. That's real. That's a real real. story. But that was made up that all of her neighbors watched. That wasn't true. Mm -hmm. That was made up by the news reporter who wanted a story. 
And so, like, this alt-right psycho has his whole worldview of humanity built upon a lie. It wasn't 40 people that watched and did nothing. Those people weren't there to watch. It was a horrible thing that happened. But this, like, whole humanity has failed us is a narrative being created to sell newspapers. Mm-hmm. And it created this monster of Rorschach. I thought that was so interesting. That is very true. Something I... that um, that I found from listening to true crime podcasts and different things like that is there's a podcast that I listen to that repeatedly over and over says, like, you don't need to make crimes worse. Like, crimes are bad. You don't need to... to lie in situations like that because it can lead to to characters like Rorschach. Like you can get horrible, horrible results like this. And he's just, he's just a lot. (laughs) He's a lot to unpack there. I've seen it so often like Dallas, you were talking to me. Um, you wanted to talk about Rorschach pronouns and current like um, anti-trans propaganda, and it's just it's the idea that lies can spread into full-fledged, untethered to any sense of reality hatred. The the idea of Rorschach is someone that sees either good or bad. There is no in between. There is no room for discourse. No room for discussion. Um, someone who actively judges other people constantly without ever taking a second to self-reflect. Um, it's something that has only, ex- I think it's one of the aspects of this book that has only accelerated in recent times compared to what it was in the eighties. It's the scariest part about this book is that people idolize Rorschach. Yeah. I, I want to throw it out there. In case you're listening to this, you respect our opinions, and somehow this got over on you. It's not your fault. This got over on a lot of people. Rorschach is not a good person. This book calls Rorschach a Nazi like four times. Because these alt-right individuals, people that view the world how Rorschach views the world, are Nazis. They are evil And if you find yourself viewing Rorschach as some sort of counterculture hero, analyze that. Take a step back. Please trust us. Please give yourself some room to reflect and course correct. This is a bad, bad man. And the fact that there are so many comic fans that have latched onto him is disheartening. And if you are one of them, please do not. He's an interesting character in the way that he looks for problems. Because he, anything he views as gray, he needs to, he needs to find that place to settle it. Like I, the very first issue when he goes to Ozymandias, he has that internal dialogue, which is just kind of funny out of context, which is like possibly homosexual must analyze further. Because he is a thousand percent a person who is one homosexual himself to a self-hating homosexual who does not view that as a positive aspect of society. and th- He's looking for a way, he's looking for a reason to put Ozymandias on either side of the line. 
he needs to know where he goes. And he's also a character who, in that first issue, also points out that he's like, yeah, the comedian had some good points. And he, because he decided that that, since he was true and saw the world as it was, you know, like he told it as it was, he decided that must mean he is the good guy. He is on the good side because like me, he sees it as it is. There is no room for maybe. I really like the last six panels of Rorschach's issue, issue six. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's the psychologist looking at the inkblot test. And he says, I sat on the bed. I looked at the Rorschach blot. I tried to pretend it looked like a spreading tree. Shadows pooled beneath it, but it didn't. It looked more like a dead cat I once found. The fat, glistening grubs writhing blindly, squirming over each other, frantically tunneling away from the light. But even that is avoiding the real horror. The horror is this. In the end, it is simply a picture of empty, meaningless blackness. We are alone. There is nothing else. And then it's a pure black panel. And then there is a quote from Nietzsche that says, Battle not with monsters, lest ye become a monster. And if you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. And the quotes at the end of these issues whip so hard, by the way. Alan Moore, you're a genius for finding these quotes. I have no idea. One thing I learned from that maestro course is that Alan Moore might be the most well-read person in the universe. And that is why he's one of the greatest writers to ever live. Like just his ability to pull random shit from everywhere. He is truly omnivorous and his mind is beautiful. But returning to this point, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares also back into you. I think one of the dangers that comes with this black and white thinking, I touched on it at the beginning of this conversation, is that you realize very quickly that you will not find anyone that is purely white and clean and pure in this worldview. And so your inability to see gray leads you to view everything as black and abysmal. And this false duality, well, it is often framed as a let's separate the bad from the good in practice is just let's enlarge the bad. Let's look at the bad. Let's make the bad the whole thing. Let's hyper fixate on the bad and make it our entire talking point. Our entire everything is focused on attacking this perceived evil that we have darkened until it is pitch black. And it's just so sad to see that Rorschach's mentality is not strange to us. There are people right now that view the world how he does. Like Ayn Rand is still a popular philosopher with people. There, I promise you, there are people in your life that have read an Atlas Shrugged and were like, damn, that made some points. And it's just, no, it didn't. <laughs> no, it, it did not. It is not. There is no amount of profundity to that kind of mm-hmm. thought process. Please, let's step back from the ledge. Yeah. Lexi, you said that this issue, issue six, was the moment that the book started turning around for you where it started like speaking to you as something special. What was it about this issue that, that really clicked? 
Um, I don't know if I can exactly. Hmm. I don't know if I can exactly pinpoint the moment, but I feel like it's when, in my mind at least, like the loose ends started to kind of get tied up. If that makes mm-hmm. sense, because I'm like, oh, like I actually get to get this background. Like I actually get to see these characters. Like I can kind of understand where the craziness is coming from. And also the psychologist as a character, like his story being put up side to side with the Rorschach interviews, it just made it feel so much more like, I don't know, like to have the reality and the crazy put up next to each other. Like he is a normal man doing his job, trying to his best ability, help someone that he knows needs help. And okay. it's just put up against these other panels of just pure insanity of like Rorschach hitting that guy in the face with the boiling oil. Like mm-hmm. the, he, this is just a character that's so far gone and it's kind of just the downfall of the psychologist seeing that, which is so disheartening. Like, exactly how Dallas said about the last page. Like, it really is just the solidification of where the story is going. Which I it, – it finally was, like, the hook of, like, oh, okay. Something interesting is happening here. So that's, that's kind of why I feel like page six – I mean, issue six was – the hook for me. It makes, yeah, it makes sense. All this is the last like main character introduction. We don't get Ozymandias' yeah. origin till like the end, but he's really such a non player through most of the story until that end part. But yeah, that's it's. And you were talking about the, the psychologist again who's like, he's just here to help. But even when he says that, the first thing Rorschach does is he tries to find that reason to put him in that black side. He's like, you're just doing this because you want to make that. You want to write that paper. And the, I like you that the psychiatrist. Yeah. And I like it because the psychiatrist hesitates because that's definitely a part of it. That's, and he's like, he questions himself because that mentality eats away at you, like Dallas said in that last page, until that's all you see. And it's infectious. It's like a contagion and it spreads. And it's, this is, there's, there's several issues in here that I think are like all time great perfect issues this is one of them i texted you that i had something to say about rorschach pronouns and the Mm alt-right and it comes down to rorschach's speech pattern once he goes off the deep end and i only realized this reading the little text pages there's a letter from rorschach as a teenager And he sounds like a normal human being. And it really made me start to ask myself, all right, why does this guy never use a personal pronoun? Why does he never say I? Why does he never? None of his sentences have a personal pronoun. It's all verbs and referring to everything else but himself. And I think a really destructive part of this black and white thinking is, like I said, no one is perfectly good how your philosophy says they should be. And you know that about yourself 
And so you chip away at the idea of self. I do not think it's an accident that Kovacs does not have a sense of self. He cannot turn that mirror inward. He cannot accept that he is not good. And so he dissolves the idea of he. He dissolves the idea of himself. He is not a person. He is a set of actions interacting with the world around him. And I think that that kind of self-loathing is at the heart of a lot of alt-right transphobia today of saying, I cannot accept a sense of self. And so other people who are working so hard towards a sense of self-actualized self Mm. are an affront to me and I need to attack it. I need to chip away at it. I see you engaging honestly and openly with your perception of self and finding joy in that. And I cannot do that. And so I have to take it away from you. I have philosophy that does not allow me to love myself. And therefore, I cannot let you love yourself. And that is probably not news to many people that are listening to this. But for me, it was, and oh, that's what's at the core of that hatred. That it, obviously, there are other things going on there. But I thought, I never would have thought that Rorschach's speech pattern would have made me think about those things. And I just think that Watchmen is a pretty cool comic to spark that kind of stuff. Like there's so much thoughtfulness in this comic that it leads you to being thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was an incredibly interesting catch. Wow. And it's, (laughs) this comic is great. I feel like I could spend the next two hours talking about it, to be honest, because I feel like, you know, halfway in, we barely scratched the surface. (sighs) I just, (laughs) Oh, Lexi, Lexi, good, good comic choice. I'm glad you picked this on your own and no one had to coerce you into this. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) So we are faced with a choice. Do we want to keep talking or do we want to look at some of these listener questions? I can go either way. I feel like for me, maybe the listener questions could spark some pointed conversation. Yeah. I think the only character we didn't talk in depth about was Ozymandias. Maybe a little bit about Nine Owl, but we'll we'll get it. I think the questions can help guide us in the right direction. (laughs) Okay. Um, Little heads up. The first question in our docket is pretty angry at Watchmen for existing. I went back and forth about whether or not to include this question because we try to be a pretty positive podcast. We just kind of talk about the things we love. But Watchmen makes a lot of people mad (laughs) just for existing. And I thought it would be interesting to read that off and then kind of give our thoughts on it. Okay. All right. So I can read the first question. This is from Mason Gonzalez. It says, howdy party people, still love the show. Got a few questions for you. Don't have to answer them all. Please don't call me a moron for thinking some of these things, at least not on mic, please. Do you feel that Watchmen had a more positive or negative impact on the medium of Western comics as a whole in the long run? Um, and Mason gives his thoughts, which he says, I feel it was more negative than good. While yes, Watchmen is deep and thematic and says many important relevant things. Since it came out... 
uh, if a book isn't a Watchmen-esque or a straight-up riff ripoff it is not praised or respected by anyone who isn't invested in comics culture the only way for people outside the orbit to be interested in a comic is for it to be like watchmen and not every story can or should be that otherwise if there are 500 watchmen clones none of the copies or the original are special anymore but no to mainstream media and especially snobs if you ain't deconstruction you're not worth the paper you're printed on and you are a buffoon if you like this stuff so let's tackle that first one. Do we agree that A, the perception of comic books is that they are not worthwhile if they are not Watchmen? And B, do we fault Watchmen for that perceived perception? Can I start as the... Yes. Yes as the quote-unquote amateur. Um, first of all, thank you for your question and your point of view because I do see a lot of your points. Um, for me, I feel like as someone who – I love to say that I'm an amateur in this, but I've been doing this podcast for two years, so I guess I can't really call myself that anymore. But someone who is constantly being exposed to new comics – I feel like for me and my individual experience, I have never found anything that's like this before. I feel like each comic is special for its own reason. I feel like each writer and artist brings something different to the table. And I feel like for me, um, and to kind of pull from a bit of your question, it says, do you feel that Watchmen had a more positive or negative impact on the medium of Western comics? I feel like... um, So I watched a really instructive YouTube video that Dallas sent me that I thought was really interesting. And it kind of made the point that, of course, I wouldn't know because I didn't exist in the 80s, unfortunately. But um, before this, um, the kind of quote unquote dark, negative, gritty comics and superheroes didn't really exist. So I feel like I feel like it did open a door for a lot of what we have now, like whether or not you view that as good or bad, like this for sure shaped the direction of comics and where they were going and where they are now. And whether you view that as good or bad, that's your own opinion. But for me, I feel like it did start a catalyst, but I don't necessarily think it was a negative one. It's, it's interesting because this will happen. It happened with Watchmen here. It'll happen in other medias. Um, too, where when you get something that is so successful and so renowned, you're gonna want to copy it because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's it's art, but also we are making art in a capitalistic society, so it's all about that final that final dollar. So when people see something that works, there's easy ways to take elements of it that are easy to reproduce with Watchmen. It is the, the darkness of it, the grittiness of it, the realism of it. And you can funnel that into your other properties and kind of sell them with that same edge, but with none of the, the same purpose and thematic resonance. And it leads to a hollower product. And when you put all that grittiness into a package with nothing really to say, it can definitely leave a sour taste in the mouth. Um, I've, we, we've seen this happen with, um, comics reacting to both this and the Dark Knight, um, returns, which is like, 
the 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 main takeaway isn't what these books are saying but is the the package they are wrapped in and you that's it's part of the reason why events are so popular because it is something easy to do that sells very well and i i hate saying it but you know when you talk about deconstructions it's one of those things that gets people who are only vaguely aware of comics interested in comics because people are like, oh yeah, I know Superman. He's that silly cartoon character from Saturday morning um, Justice League shows who is really strong and super powerful. But then you tell someone like, hey, there's a new show out, but Superman's evil. This is like a deconstructed Superman. It's a different look at Superman. People are like, well, I know this. Superman is a familiar um, concept, a familiar character, and they're doing something different with it. I want to see what that looks like. And it's easy for people to jump in that way. That's also a hook for people that aren't as invested in the medium as I think a lot of other comic readers are. So just from a a side of like sales and understanding why they do that from the publishing side, I get why it happens and I know why it happens. It doesn't mean you have to like it though. I think, I don't think it's fair to take it out on Watchmen itself for this happening because it's a well-constructed story on its own. It says very important things. It's not the comic's fault that we exist in the society we do where publishing companies have to make the decisions they do. That is a thousand percent a corporate responsibility. And as for people who are like uninterested in any comic that isn't up to Watchmen's level, that's a that's a snob issue, a thousand percent. Where it's like, if you can't enjoy any comic unless it's the best comic you've ever read, wow, must suck to like only one comic ever because only one comic is ever going to be the best comic you've ever read. That's a, well, I couldn't imagine a more depressing way to live to only pick the best thing you've ever liked and like nothing else. That's, definitely don't let that hamper your enjoyment of something. That's That's purely a them issue. That's all my thoughts on it. Sorry, I think I went for longer than I should have. No, and I have a little teeny tiny spicy take off just to piggyback off that real fast. This is not the best book I've ever read. There you go. You can sit with that one for a while. As the local snob, I feel the need to speak. I don't actually think Watchmen is as popular outside of just comic book reading fandom because it is the gritty, real superhero book, especially now that there are so many gritty, real superhero books, right? If people want that flavor, they can find it anywhere. And yet Watchmen is still the best-selling graphic novel every single year. And ultimately, I think it's because Watchmen is something special. Mm. I think that Watchmen is not a series of interesting plot points. I don't think that it is a story of, I don't think it's a power fantasy with inverted morality. I think that it is actually about something and that something speaks to America and to Americans who pick it up. I have completely flip-flopped on my opinion of this book as someone's first comic book. I kept telling Alexis like, let's put Watchmen off until you're ready. Let's put Watchmen off until you're ready. I honestly, I think this is the only comic book I would hand like half of my normal friends. Like, hey, this one's got something to say. Here you go. Hey, my little commie friends. 
read this one. You'll like it. You probably won't care about Steve Ditko's relationship with Ayn Rand, but that's honestly just kind of sprinkles on top. I do think you will have a lot to say about The Comedian, about Dr. Manhattan, about Rorschach, about what this book is actually about. And I don't think it's wrong to expect more from our comic books. I don't think that they have to be tackling the same issues as Watchmen. My example for another comic book operating at the highest possible level for what it is would be Sunstone. I think Sunstone is a comic book that tackles real human issues and emotions at a level that few other things have. I don't think there is another romance comic that does what Sunstone does because there is so much care. There is a specific thing that a creator wants to say that that creator says incredibly well, right? So the Watchmen effect, the unless a comic is just like Watchmen, I think that's flattening an issue a little bit. I think it's also okay to not care about average ass comics. Like there are so many good things in the world. There are so many excellent novels, films, television shows, albums, plays that I do not have time to ever read a Jeff Johns comic again. Like I know that that's mean to drop a name, but it just comes like this catch all phrase for just keeping the corporate momentum of superheroes going comic books. Comic books that have nothing more to say than good should beat evil in a spectacular way. I just don't have time for that. I understand that message. That is not going to impact my life. I view the world differently having read Watchmen this last week. I have had interesting conversations with loved ones, and you've been a part of one. Fans, you've been listening to us having this interesting conversation. And I'm honestly so grateful to Watchmen for opening that door, for saying, hey, let's ask bigger questions with this tool that we've been given. Something I love that Alan Moore said was that he believes that most of the greatest comics ever written have yet to be written. It is such a young medium. It has so much to give us. And I think if we look with an eye of ire towards a book that was willing to poke its head up and be something a little bit more than what was around it, we will be discouraging future people from also sticking their heads up and doing something new and fresh. That's my two cents. Question number two. Oh, sorry, Anne. No, I was going to say good points all around, everyone. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good sense. Good sense. All right. Question number two. Why is Watchmen the only case I can think of where when people talk about a creator getting screwed over for a book, which he was, people only ever bring up or seem to care about more, but no one mentions Gibbons? Why do we cry so much for appreciation for artists and their importance to the medium, except for Watchmen in terms of its discourse about the industry, especially since Gibbons, as far as I can tell, still works with DC and cares about this book. He even made art for the HBO show. Don't really know how to end this question. Just an observation. I mean, different things affect people differently, right? Mm -hmm. Like it did not bother Dave Gibbons that his work was taken from him in the same way that it did Alan Moore. Like, 
That's all there is to it. It hurt Alan Moore. The end. <laughs> right? Am I missing something? I I mean, I don't think so. I it's I think it's the one that we talk about the most cuz it's the most famous one and Alan Moore is arguably one of the more outspoken people about um these companies just taking their work and not really caring about their input or if they're properly compensated. It's an issue that needs to keep being discussed. I remember cuz I think the biggest one recently was we were just talking last year about Isad Ribic's work being ripped off for Love and Thunder and not seeing a dime for it. And we got um, David Aha's um, work was being ripped off for the Hawkeye show and he had no idea it was happening. It's still something that's happening to this day and it should be as frustrating every single time. I don't think it's a zero um, something where it's like we have to be mad at... Um, one specific thing or nothing at all. It's like, we can be mad at all of it. We can be mad that these creators aren't being properly compensated. It's like, just because Dave and Dave Gibbons is still working with DC doesn't mean he's not still mad about this. It just means he's a man who needs a paycheck. I would like, we'll work for money. Thank you. I would also point out Alan Moore has given all of his royalties for Watchmen to Dave Gibbons. Like he signed them over years ago. He did not. He has not gotten a penny for Watchmen in decades. So, all of those Watchmen is the best-selling graphic novel every single year. All goes to Dave Gibbons every mm-hmm. single year. <laughs> and I would yeah. also point out what creators are mad. Jack Kirby, mad. Bill Watterson, mm-hmm. mad. Alan Moore, mad. David Aha mad these are creators that revolutionized the comic book medium by doing something new that everyone has been copying since Mm -hmm. do you know how hard it is to make something new like not a pastiche not a this plus this this plus it is so damn hard to have an original thought and then to do execute that original thought in an original way. I don't think it's a coincidence that the artists that pulled that off are the ones that are so damn mad. I, yeah, that's, that sums it up pretty well. I think Lexi, do you have any thoughts about this part of the question? I don't think I can speak on this one because I don't know any context about it. So Alan Moore's pissed and quit comics. Alan Moore is always pissed because he said hey I should have been paid more for making a comic that changed a whole industry and DC said fuck you you're a subcontractor and he said Mm -hmm. fuck you I'm taking my ball and going home (laughs) and then he went to his home in the woods to cook (laughs) his magic potions Mm -hmm. and write Mm -hmm. the craziest novels you've ever read (laughs) I can't I can't. I still got. <laughs> Never mind. Can I read this next one? Because I was I was reading ahead a little bit, and mm-hmm. I I'd like to jump on this one. Yeah, get it. Okay. So, why do people who love comics love just praising and brown nosing Alan Moore and other writers like him? Morrison, Kirkman, Sue DeConnick, Simone Ridley, 
Boo Baker, Warren Johnson, Zdarsky, etc., when as far as I feel, they don't respect or even like people our age who love reading comics of all genres, especially more who always calls people like us idiots or babies for liking these things. I'm not saying they're bad writers or that they shouldn't be writing. Their genius is smarter than I have ever been or ever will be. But why the praise from people we know they don't respect unless you have a big enough following to warrant them talking to you so that you can hype their books? I apologize if this email came off super for lack of a better word, bitchy, just some things I wanted to ask people who love and know more comics than I do. Plus, you guys are actually nice enough to respond when people ask things unlike others out there. Okay, first I'm going to say, Mason, is thank you for writing in. Um, We appreciate your opinion. Just so you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ramble for a little bit. And I know that um, Dallas is going to have some things to say here too. It's, I do not think we have the same definition of respect or it's, I think these right. I think we put a lot of impetus on social media interactions with writers to be their true feelings on the matter. It's, I don't think that there is a single person you listed here who doesn't want to make a book that someone's going to love. I don't think there's a single writer in this list who isn't trying every day to write a comic that someone's going to take home and say, this is my favorite book of all time. I think there are people on this list, though, who will definitely say, shut the fuck up if you come at them with like, hey, do a powerbomb with suck ass. I hated it. I think they will do that. I think it's... I, I don't I don't understand where, where that aspect of the comic's coming from. I'm not sure if you've had personal bad interactions with these people. Um, especially like Kelly Sue Connick and Gail Simone, who've shown nothing but like love for at least from my perspective, love for this community and these people in it. But I wanted because that's kind of nebulous to me. I'm not sure where a lot of that's coming from, to be honest. So I can't say too much more there. Um, And I'm also one of those big accounts who is followed by several of the people on this list. So I can't, I feel like I might be a more biased answer than what you're looking for. But I will go off this point you bring up about Moore, who always calls people like us idiots or babies for liking these things. I don't think he's saying you're an idiot or a baby for liking superheroes. I think he's saying that people need to approach these books from a smarter angle than they do before. Their <sighs> hero worship is a huge factor of Watchmen that we did not really get into. There is a reason why um, you go through the the extras when um, the original Owlman or the original Night Owl is talking about like, I wish we would have stopped it before because now it's too late. I think there is an easy and direct correlation that you can draw between things like hero worship and more real life... Um, and disastrous philosophies like nationalism, where it's you devote yourself purely to an idea and the fact that that idea cannot be wrong, that that idea is perfect and that idea will keep you safe and keep you comfortable. And you don't even realize that you've lost all control until it's too late. I think using the Minutemen and the Watchmen the way this book does is a direct response to that. I, th- It's Alan Moore saying you need to be a responsible consumer. You need to think about what you're reading because like even characters like Superman have messages that will change based on the decade. You will have a different Superman being written by John Byrne than you will Superman written by Grant Morrison because a character will reflect the politics of the person writing the book. 
you need to be able to not just take everything a character says at face value. Because if you decide if Superman can do no wrong and he can steer me, he can't steer me wrong, you will follow him into the abyss if someone is writing him to guide you into the abyss. It is not them calling you stupid. It is them saying, please read these books like they are books. Do not take these characters as modern gods. This is not the second coming of Jesus. Please remember that these are books made by people and people have agendas. Keep that in mind. And I don't know. I, it's Dallas, do you have anything to add? Um, I think you hit it pretty well. I, I want to talk to a certain kind of comic book fandom that exists on the internet that feels an entitlement to unfettered access to real life people because those people make art that the fan enjoys. These creators don't owe you anything. Like they, they don't owe you their time. They don't owe you their conversation, their energy. They already give you so much in this artwork, something I love, I've referenced it a few times on the show now. There was an interview with Bill Hader where he said that he and his friends had a tradition where after every movie, they would go out to a diner and they would tear that movie to shreds, talking about how stupid it was, how bad it was, all the mistakes, all the plot holes, all the this, that, and the other. He said, and then he wrote his first screenplay and realized how hard it was. And he was never interested in doing that and going to that event at the diner ever again. I don't think we as fans understand what someone like Daniel Warren Johnson, I cannot believe his name is in this email, something like Daniel Warren Johnson does when he just pours his heart out on the page. He makes all that artwork. He spends hours every day drawing that, writing that, coming up with that, being emotionally honest with himself and showing that to you. And there's a sense of like ownership that he should give you more. I don't, I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't understand the animosity as well towards creators, not engaging with people who are unkind to them. Right. This idea that unless you're a brown noser, these people don't want to talk to you. I, I don't know. I li like Anne, I, I feel like I might be biased here, but I've talked to people in your list here and they're incredibly kind. And if you just talk to them like human beings, they talk back like human beings. But I feel like if anyone approached me, I was like, I don't know, like people come for Dan Slot all the time. Like, hey, you fat <laughs> fuck, you ruined Spider-Man. Like, what the hell? How could you ever talk to another human being like that? How could you ever say something like that over something as silly as Spider-Man? Like, that hurts. That would hurt your feelings if someone said that to you. I don't understand how then people are mad that these people get their feelings hurt. These creators get their feelings hurt and they retract. They say, I'm not interested in talking with you. 
And then it's, oh, well, what the hell? Just because I didn't brown nose you. It's like, no, you were unkind. Like, if you said that to anyone in real life, they would retract as well. You don't have a relationship with these people because you bought their comic book. And you're coming into conversations assuming that you do have that relationship. Talk to them like normal people and you will be shocked at how quickly you realize they are normal people. They are kind. Thank you. That's exactly what I was hoping you'd say. Lexi, do you have anything to add? Um, I just, just a little piggyback. I just feel like bottom line, comics are a medium that are very personal between every each individual consumer. Everyone's going to have different opinions. Everyone will feel spoken to in a different reason for a different comic. And also I completely agree with what Dallas has to say. Like these creators, these people, these individuals who have families, homes, lives apart from their job as comic book writers and artists, they don't owe us anything. (laughs) Like they don't care. I'm sorry. Like if you want to go in their Twitter DMs and say like, oh, you ruined Spider-Man okay, don't read it. (laughs) You're not going to affect them in any way. And you being mean is just an internal look on you as a person. That's all you're affecting is yourself and making yourself a nasty individual. So that's just what I think. Just in normal life too. Anybody, with anybody, just be nice. There's literally no reason to be mean. Thank you, Lexi. There's... Oh, you. No, you. I was going to say, I would like to point out that I have personally never brown-nosed John Ridley ever. I've been very vocal <laughs> about the fact <laughs> that I think what he's doing with her name on Tori right now is a crime. But here's the thing. I'm not going to go in his DMs and be like, hey, you personally disrespected me because you have a different take on her name on Toria than I do. I'm not going to go into Joshua Williamson's DMs and say the way he used Black Canary and Deathstroke Inc. was borderline misogynist, and I hate it. I'm not going to do that because it's like, just because someone has a different idea of what a character should be doing or how to use that character does than I do doesn't mean they're trying to intentionally disrespect me. It just means we have different perspectives. And also, I don't know all the behind the scenes why this is happening. I don't know why John Ridley's like, hey, Renee Montoya, super mega cop, actually. I don't know why Joshua Williamson is like, Black Canary would be a great sidekick for Death- Deathstroke. It could be something like, hey, I wanted to put Death put it uh, sorry i can't talk i got i got flustered and now i can't speak it could have been something as simple as i wanted to write black canary and they would not green light a black canary book so i put her into something that they would green light it could be something that innocuous it all yeah it's just because you don't see it from that perspective doesn't mean they're intentionally trying to piss you off i also would just add my two cents if you think you could do better go do it fucking better like Mm -hmm. okay start writing comics become the level of comic book writer that can approach something like Watchmen until you can look Alan Moore in the eyes and say I'm as good as you are at writing comic books and I think you're the dumb baby (laughs) I really like that's my I don't know man I don't know (laughs) um yeah sorry mason just so you know anything we've said here we're not taking it out on you we're just i think that the emotions you're feeling are valid and i just wanted to explain why we feel the way we 
I just wanted to explain why we feel the way we do. Yeah. Uh, do we want to read the next question? Yeah, Lexi, you I got can. this one, right? Yeah, because this is a fun question. Okay, so it says, hey, Watchmen watchers, hope you enjoyed watching the men. I don't ever enjoy watching the men, but thank you for that. <laughs> They're quite gross. Um, <laughs> you get to recast one of the Watchmen with a Looney Tune playing the part. Who would you pick and why? XOXO Juniper. <sighs> Now we're now we're in. This real, is the, the money real right here. This is the real question that we've all been waiting for. I could probably recast every single one of them. <laughs> first of all, <laughs> first of all, the comedian is Yosemite Sam, and nobody can change my mind. <laughs> Rorschach <laughs> is Elmer Fudd. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, dog okay. caucus in the alley this morning. <laughs> on both stomach. And the city is afraid of oh, me. Oh. I have seen its true face. <laughs> okay. And so Juniper, you know, in in respect to Mason's questions, I have to a- answer this as angrily as I answered that one. So listen here. I don't know who you think you are. But this is no laughing matter. This God is no. <laughs> Bugs Bunny is um Ozymandias. <gasps> eh. yes. Did it 35 minutes ago, doc. <laughs> Gasp. <laughs> I'm walked in here with you. What you walked in here with me. Or or the- Marvin the Martian is just Dr. Manhattan in a different font. I thought of that. And then I thought how much funnier it would be if it was Daffy Duck as Dr. Manhattan. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just I'm picturing blue. It's like, why are you blue? Bugs Bunny <sighs> presses the button to send the um the squid and then it pops up in like a random cast is like, I knew I should have sent that I knew I should have taken that left turn at Albuquerque. No. Night Owl as Tweety. I was going to oh. say Night Owl as Wiley Coyote and Silk Spectre <laughs> as Roadrunner. <laughs> that's got some layers. Yeah. Ooh, that's a lot to unpack there. Oh. That's a oh. new masterpiece. Oh. This is my masterpiece. <laughs> Good. It. Oh my God. Um, oh. Juniper, oh that my. ruled. That was, was a good a question. question. We need more questions like these, please. <laughs> Just every week. Somebody give us a good one. Oh, thanks. I'm going to read this one because Joshua definitely sucked up a little bit first. Hello, Sexy Collective. Thank you, Joshua cool. Gomez. Flattered. Looking Very looking forward to hearing your thoughts as you are all the ones that watch The Watchmen. Now, truly, you are all big brain comic podcasters. We, we've, we've, we've peaked. We should probably just quit after this. I try my fun. best, Joshua. I really do. <laughs> You're doing great. For my question, which of the Golden Age heroes we met do you think suffers the worst of them? And what do you think their fate had to say about the themes of Watchmen? Muchas gracias, Joshua Gomez. Which, I believe he's asking, like, which of the original um, Minutemen had the worst fate? Yes. Mm. I think it's, I want to say, personally, I think it's Night Owl, because he got his skull beaten by the very thing that he lamented about in his book, where he's like, if we had just stopped sooner, wouldn't have had a gang of hooligans come beat my skull in on Halloween night. Tragic. I'm gonna go uh, OG Silk Spectre at the worst. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Victimized by a system and stalked into it. Brutal. 
Um, the Watchmen television show has Minutemen flashbacks. And what they do with Hooded Justice is super interesting. Just going to throw that out there. Why didn't I... Sorry, not to not to jump over Lexi, but I should have mentioned the one single lesbian on the team who, you know, she got she got off before we ever met her. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> we got to bury your gaze in issue 1. It's fine. I loved in I don't know if you read this, but in Sally Jupiter's interview in one of her text pieces, she talks about how quickly they kicked the lesbian out while all being fully aware that they were letting the gay men stay. Mm-hmm. And she just, she's like, I just, she's like, I remember watching that happen and just thinking that it was crazy, but just going along with it. It's crazy. It goes back to that theme of women who realize they can benefit from that system being perfectly okay with the bad of the system, which includes throwing other women under the bus. Once you're in the boardroom, you can keep other way. You pull up the ladder after you. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Lexi, do you have any Minutemen that you think suffered the worst? I would say Sally, probably. Della took my answer, but... Sorry. He does that. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. Your brain is just mine, but the original. I came second. You do remix. <laughs> I'm just you with a different face. Thank you, Joshua. Your, your brain's like mine, but it goes, DJ Khaled. <laughs> oh my God. Literally. That's literally what happens in my brain sometimes. <laughs> I consistently go, another one. <laughs> I know you do. Another one. Quit. I think every day about Pitbull. And that's not an exaggeration. I think every single day I think about Pitbull. <laughs> He's so funny. He's so funny. Love that for you. You, you want to read the next question, Dallas? Yes. This is from Jakob van Gemeren, who says, Hello, everyone. I was very excited for your episode about Watchmen, one of the best comics ever, in my opinion. My question is, what are your thoughts on Zack Snyder's movie of Watchmen? And if there is any other director you would have liked to see directing this comic? Greetings from Germany. P.S. Thank you, Anne, for you and your Twitter account. You were the first one of the three of you I discovered on Twitter, and I thought you... And through you, I found so many cool comics, indies and outside of the big two. Thank you for expanding my horizon. Aww. Thank you, Jakob. I, I really appreciate that. I'm glad I could help. Um, yeah. Yeah. Has anyone here seen the movie besides me? I have not seen the movie. I have not seen the movie. Um, <laughs> This will be easy then. Um, I think the movie is the perfect representation of how an adaptation can try its best to perfectly one-to-one adapt a lot of elements of a story while completely missing a lot of the unspoken text. I think there's a lot that is excluded from both the theatrical and the extended cuts and the super ultra ultimate cut, whatever that is, that's like four hours long that still just misses the point. I think one of the biggest differences is that in the movie, they go with the ending that um, editor Len Wein wanted for the original comic, which was instead of squid monster, what if we just have Dr. Manhattan take the fall for the explosion that kills out that kills half of New York because 
Len Wein was arguing, like, this would make more narrative sense. You're going through a lot of hoops to get to the giant squid monster. Whereas Alan Moore is like, you know, giant squid monster makes more thematic sense. I'm going with the giant squid monster. And since Alan Moore wasn't really involved with the movie production, it was easier for that switch to be made. I think it's something that was easier for the general audience to swallow too. It's easy to, it's easier for them to take in, hey, the bat, the, we can just blame it on the big super dude who's here. We, there's no reason to fake it on alien invasion. It's, and it just, it, I feel like it undercuts a lot of the themes. I could talk a lot about how I feel like that undercuts the themes. Um, it's like the the call is coming from inside the house. So why would the world unite if America just dished on itself? I don't understand. But it's we have so many questions to get through. It's it's an all right viewing experience just from a visual perspective, which I feel like a lot of Zack Snyder movies are. But in terms of any real depth, I feel like it doesn't have a fraction of what's in this book. I think you should watch the show, Anne. It's a sequel to the comic, not the movie. So the squitter, the squitter in it. Sweet. I was actually reading this comic this time with um, what's his face who plays Ozymandias, um, Jeremy Irons, right? Mm -hmm. I was I I was listening to his voice when I was reading this. You know, it's so much cooler when your bad guy is just Scar from The Lion King. So he does. I think I'm going to rewatch that show. That show is so good. <laughs> oh, Lexi, you want to hit the next one? Absolutely. Which one? She's the long one. Take a deep breath. Who's <laughs> the long one? Okay. Uh, hello, Comics Collective. Um, and Dallas and Lexi and sometimes Evan. LOL. Yeah, that is an LOL. We love Evan. Um, I have been a follower of yours since Owen appeared and realized I might have a new comic book podcast obsession on my hands. Your podcasts always make me appreciate books I love even more. I appreciate you so much that you guys can disagree and have good-natured opinions on this wonderful medium without having to condemn anyone for liking things and give praise and criticism where it is deserved. My question relates to Watchmen, the comic versus the show and movie and sequel books like Rorschach, which I hope you cover one day. Watchmen, the book, deals with the America with America's relationship to nostalgia, the perfuming the book as well as the history with the Minutemen and the comedian being tools to whitewash the history of the past in order to justify the malevolence of their presence. After all, the easiest way to move forward is to forget about a conflict and move beyond it. So wouldn't America do the same? Moore hates the movie, so uncritically adapting a critique of fascism into a standard glorifying superhero movie. And I feel that the show and Rostock do not fall into this trap. Both sequels show the symbolism of Watchmen as something to be cringed at as well as ashamed of. And yet they are not held to the high regard of the comic. Do you guys think that the obsession of the superheroes is meant to show that these figures were always corrupt? Or that fascism and nostalgia can corrupt even the most well-intentioned movements and characters? Thanks. Love y'all's work. And that question was from Keith Gaiman. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for the nice words. Oh, who wants to jump into this one first? Teacher, pick me. Pick me. Pick me. Oh, Dallas. All right. First off, shout out you for saying that we're very nice to people that have different opinions for us when I was very mean to someone who had a different opinion for me in this episode. <laughs> you were a real one. Mason, I'm sorry if I came out too spicy. Mason, I we appreciate- just hope you're still here. You hit a nerve. 
Yeah, sorry. Um, I love both the television show and the Rorschach comic. And I think it boils down to something that Tom King said in an interview where he watched that television show and realized that it was the perfect sequel to Watchmen because it realized that Watchmen was a language whereby you used the tools Alan Moore gave you, like a reflection on the past, a strong two feet in the medium it's being told, and a critique of America in your moment, and thus created a beautiful art piece. And so he took that same approach in his Rorschach book, which serves as a very interesting commentary on our exact moment and what fascism and alt-right an alt-right character like Rorschach would look like in this exact moment. So I think they're successful because they understand the spirit of what Alan Moore is doing. Whereas I think Zack Snyder and things like before Watchmen or Doomsday Clock fall short because they try to adapt the letter and internal legacy of Watchmen rather than the language of Watchmen, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I need to watch the show. I think it'd be really fun. Oh, it's so it. good, Lex. Maybe that's will be Carson and I's next binge watch because we just finished The Last of Us and we're kind of sad. Do it. And then let me know if Alan Moore's right or wrong because he also hates the show. No, no. Okay. It's a vibe. Sorry. I'm Alan. gonna I'm gonna let that go, Dallas, because we have so many questions to get through. Yeah. I think you answered it perfectly. Wait. Um, next question is from April Coyle. Um, yeah. For the Watchmen episode, as much as I love Alan Moore as a writer, he is not particularly known for his writing of women. What are your opinion of the women in the story, mainly the two Silk Spectres? Are there any other women? LOL. I can't wait to listen. Lots of love from April. P.S. Your Mr. Miracle episode changed my life. Wow. That's some high praise. That's incredible. Thank you that so made much, my April. Heart warm. Um, I, I talked about it a little bit earlier where it's like I understand... Or at least I I got a message coming from these <clears throat> the way these two female characters were used that I think says a lot about our society. But I think there's a difference between using female characters as a vessel for a message versus actually making them real fleshed out characters. <clears throat> I I think you can have one and not have the other. I think that's possible. Neither one of the Silk Spectres really left any sort of imprint on me in, in terms of just characterization. I see them specifically as tools for that that message. And it's just the ways they've been utilized. I've just seen so many times before that it feels very tropish at this point. Using a female character who gets um, sexually assaulted as a metaphor for how bad the patriarchy is towards women happens almost every single time it's mentioned in any form of media ever so it's like i get it but it's trite and played out if your trope was invented in the hebrew bible it might be time to rethink it mm-hmm. i would say it's one of the only things this book does not do cleverly it's yeah. one of the few things it's like this book is like we will tackle this exactly by the book yeah and i feel and- like you also put it perfectly earlier so I feel like mm-hmm. that it's a really good answer to that question. Yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I hope that I hope that's a good answer, April. Thank you so much for writing in. Hells yeah! All right. We got two more. Zach, mm-hmm. right? 
I can read one. You. I think it's been a minute. Zach writes and says, All right, Collective. Despite not having read it, I still feel the impact of it, but I do not know that Moore's original idea was to use... Oh, but I do know that Moore's original idea was to use Charlton Comics characters like Blue Beetle and Peacemaker and all that, but with some altered characteristics. So, my question is, if you were to make a story for any company with a Watchmen-style reiteration of characters, who would you have in it? Also, what's your favorite analogs, parodies of other characters in any media? Cheers for the entertainment, Zach. I have to say off the top, one of my favorite parodies of a character in any media is the Spaceballs Darth Vader. I think he is hilarious. (laughs) And that's all, or just any of the Spaceballs movie. That movie is hilarious. And no one could change your mind. Uh, I love Dark Helmet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the Wookiee dog. Love that thing. I don't even know what he is. Gosh, gosh. God bless Mel Brooks. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have any group that like, because it's like thinking about different ways characters have been reinterpreted. I can think of so many that have already been done. Like I can think of the X-Men. I can think of the Avengers. I can think of the Teen Titans. I just, I shivered because I realized the first thing I thought of when I pictured of adaptation of the Teen Titans was in the boys, which is a lot. The comic is a lot more than the show, <laughs> but I don't know. I think one of my favorite par- parodies of ever, eh, I can't talk again. One of my favorite parodies of any character is definitely irredeemable and how the plutonium plays on Superman. I think it's the only time that an evil Superman clone has ever scared me, like scared me shitless. It's, it's a good comic. I'm, I'm excited to cover it one day, but that's that's going to be my answer. I love Grant Morrison's parody of Watchmen using the Charlton characters in Multiversity. Lex, remember the Pax Americana issue of Multiversity? Or did you just black all that out of your memory? <laughs> I think I blacked all that out of my memory. Smart. Well, Good play. one of the issues of Multiversity was Grant Morrison making fun of Watchmen. I love that for because Grant. Because Grant does not like Watchmen. Good for Grant. Uh, Grant a, is entitled to their opinion. It's a kick-ass issue of comics. Grant, I don't think I agree with you on the Watchmen hate, but I do love you. So, shout out you. <laughs> Lexi, how about you? Oh, wait, no, you already answered. You said Dark Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Comedy okay. gold right there. Okay, next question. Oh, awesome. Thank you, Zach. Yes, thank you so, so much, Zach. All right, next question is from Morgan Miller. It says, watch the questions. Um, what is the biggest misconcep- whoa, misconception of the lessons from Watchmen that you all have seen? Or what do you think could be the biggest misconception someone takes away from a first read? A lot of stories are definitely products of their time. I could see how Watchmen can be viewed as such. Do you think there are any parts of the story or messages that could persist no matter the context of our society? I feel like Dallas put that perfectly earlier. It's actually a little bit more scary on point these days than it might have been a little bit ago. And also a scary misconception that people get is that Rorschach is a good guy. (laughs) That is wrong. (laughs) That is very frighteningly wrong. Dallas, how about you? Anything to add? I think I said earlier in the episode that 
people glaze over the solution that to the problem that is inside the book. So this mm-hmm. idea that Watchmen is an inherently nihilistic book is a misconception, I think. I think it prevent it presents a very crushingly dark problem, but mm-hmm. ultimately it does provide the solution within its own pages. I agree. That was going to be my biggest one. I think for the rest of it, Morgan, I'm just going to have a conversation with you when we have lunch on Friday. Um, <laughs> this is my friend Morgan, by the way. Um, thank I you for writing that. in. I'm so sorry that you're at the very end of one of our longest episodes ever. Morgan, I wish I could give you permission to skip. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could give you a longer answer on air, but I really want to wrap up so that Dallas doesn't have to be up until like midnight tonight editing this. So we will talk on Friday. I'm buying I'm buying lunch. You heard it here first. I'm paying for your meal. We'll talk then. She probably did hear it here first. This is this has been two and a half hours. <laughs> she will hear that news on Friday. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyways. Champ. Dallas. Lexi. Any final Ready? thoughts? No. No. Cool. <laughs> all thoughts have been said. Woo-hoo! There's nothing else to be added about this book. You heard it all here. Thanks for joining us gang if you're still here but um if you like our show and want to hear more from us throughout the week please go follow our twitter account at cmx collective or our tiktok account at the comics collective or you can find each of us at our personal twitter accounts at dallas underscore comics at Ann comics and at lexi lou underscore comics if you enjoyed the show and want to show your support please go to apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review and we will read it off on the show like Aaron Chur, who wrote in and said, Chip Zdarsky sent his loyal readers a message recently mentioning his interview with your podcast. This was what this is what the first I'd heard of your podcast. Your interview with him was great and inspired a scroll through your stream for more interviews. The next first standout was your conversation about Calvin and Hobbes. Spoiler alert, it was wonderful. There are a few highlights, standouts, but the number one thing that inspired this response was totally paraphrased Calvin and Hobbes is the only thing from my childhood that is able to be enjoyed today or something like that. It stood out because it is true and well said pre-paraphrase Transformers, Thundercats, GI Joe, the list goes on and on yet Calvin and Hobbes reads just as well today as it did yesterday. If not better after writing this, you will be getting a four star slash five star rating on Apple podcasts. So just wanted to say hello. Great interview. Great conversations. I'll be tuning in to see what else you've got coming currently have your Kelly Thompson interview queued up and ready. Hope you were doing well. Thank you. And 41 Marcus wrote in and said, great podcast. The episodes always feature a thoughtful and positive discussion about a diverse selection of comics. Their recommendations and analysis are helpful for me finding interesting new creators. Thanks everybody. Yeah. Thanks Aaron and Marcus. And finally, feel free to email email us with your questions or comments for the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. If you didn't hear your question read off on the air this week, I am sorry. I did not put repeats into the script this time. So a lot of people asked about adaptation. Mm. A few people asked about our like misconceptions about Watchmen. And we love you. Thank you so much for writing in. It's just... We're becoming so popular that we get a lot of emails and we're just trying to keep these episodes somewhat contained. As we have a two hour and 40 minute podcast that we're rolling out yeah. here. 
<clears throat> we might have to start putting like a cap on the the question sizes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just keep them down. We're celebrities. Just kidding. Um, but we will see everybody next week for our episode on Dallas's pick. Correct. Yes. Yes. Black sad. Featuring dun, dun, dun. returning guest Matt Draper. See you next Ooh. week. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.